This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 19th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Laura Blanton talks about malnutrition and the gut microbiome. And David Grimm is here with stories from the website, AAAS Annual Meeting, and a few jokes from Twitter. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online news stories and a few highlights from the AAAS Annual Meeting. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story from the meeting on perception and the body. The story starts out with the old, uh, we don't see the world the same way, you know, we can't be sure if we're seeing the same green when we look at grass. <laughs> but can we tell if we're seeing the same size ball? Why would we not see the same size of things, Dave? When you think about it, you know, the way that you perceive the world impacts what you're able to do. So, for example, back to the ball example, if you're a really good batter for a game like baseball or softball, it would be behoove you or you would potentially have adapted to see that ball that's coming at you as very large because the larger you see it, the easier it's going to be for you to hit. Versus if you're a bad batter, maybe it's your first time playing baseball, maybe you'll see that ball as very small because you just sort of assume you're not going to be able to hit it. Wow. So this is like the brain and training feeding back on the visual processing system? Kind of. And it's not just baseball. The researchers see some other examples in some other fields. For example, parkour, this sport where people leap from buildings and scale walls, this research has shown that they actually see these walls as not as imposing, not as high as people that don't engage in parkour. And then they hand you a tool that would help you with a task, and that can change your perception as well. This is another fun one. So researchers had a dot on a table and people were sitting maybe a short distance away from that dot. And the researcher said, well, do you think you could actually reach that dot? If the people could actually physically reach the dot, they tended to see that dot as closer than if people could physically not reach that dot. But if the researchers gave them a reaching tool, all of a sudden that dot 
seemed a lot closer than it actually was. There's evidence that the weight of a person has an effect on how someone sees the world as well. Right. And it's your own weight. So, for example, heavier people tend to see distances as farther. So I think there was a study where researchers had people at Walmart try to judge how far away they were from a handful of cones. And the people that were overweight tended to estimate that they were a lot farther. But it's not just the weight in your body. There was another study with people wearing backpacks. And if you wear a very heavy backpack and say you're hiking, you tend to see the hill you're climbing as a lot bigger, a lot more imposing than if you don't have as much weight on your back. This altogether isn't about whether or not you're good at a sport or you're overweight. It's more about how your body uses your visual system to make quick decisions. That's right. And you can imagine in any of these scenarios that you might have to make these split-second judgments. And you can't be there and go, well, what's the distance to this? Let me measure this. Let me estimate this. Your body has this quick way of telling you that, hey, it's possible for you to do that or it's difficult for you to do that. Next up, we have a story on beating cancer with gold. When surgery is used as a cancer treatment, doctors do their best to remove every cancerous cell, even following up with radiation or chemotherapy to try to get every single last tumor cell. But if one's left behind or a few are left behind, that could just start the cancer all over again. Because the surgery followed by chemo approach is not foolproof, researchers are looking for other ways to target and kill cancer cells like with gold. How does gold figure into things, Dave? Here, sir, we're talking about not big bars of gold, but actually very, very tiny pieces of gold. In fact, just small clusters of gold atoms, so small that we call them nanoparticles. And the idea is, can we get tumor cells, cancer cells, to absorb these nanoparticles? And if they do, all of a sudden they become different than the rest of the body cells. One of the biggest challenges in fighting cancer is that cancer cells look so similar and act so similar to the other cells in our body that any therapy tends to not only kill cancer cells, but normal cells. But if all of a sudden we have these cells taking up gold, research has shown in the past that if you zap that gold with laser pulses, then that's going to preferentially kill the cells with gold in it. How do the researchers target the gold to cancer cells? Well, they've tried this before. The problem is the cells don't take up a lot of gold. So they have to hit the cells a lot of times with lasers, with powerful lasers. And then, it, as you can imagine, is damaging nearby tissues, even if those tissues don't have gold. So the trick they used this time around was they, again, started with these gold nanoparticles. But this time they decorated the nanoparticles with immune protein antibodies, which specifically latch onto receptors that sit on the surface of cancer cells. This actually made the cancer cells take up a lot more gold than they would otherwise. And they also streamlined how the particles are heated to make it a little bit more directed? Yeah, instead of firing continuous laser beams like they did in the past, they fired ultra-short infrared pulses. And because the cells had so much gold in them, what would happen is that it caused the temperature in the immediate area of these cells to rise and actually vaporize water molecules that were adjacent to the cell, creating these tiny bubbles that expanded and burst, and they literally blow up <laughs> the cancer cells. And what's sort of a neat side effect of this is as the cells blow up, they actually make these tiny noises that the researchers can listen in on. And that can actually help them hone in on exactly where the cancer cells are. This sounds hypothetically wonderful, but did they do it in an animal, in a person? How did the study get conducted? Well, they did this in mice and they actually showed that they had really good success. They were able to eliminate all of the cancer tissue in the experiments that they tried without damaging the nearby tissue in these mice. Of course, next step is to try this in people. 
Now we have another story from the AAAS annual meeting. This one's on using science to investigate art. This is such an interesting area, and the story has actually three little vignettes that kind of cover the different aspects of art authentication, attributing art to a particular artist, figuring out how a piece of art was made, and yes, stopping art forgery. Let's start with attribution. What kind of art were they trying to attribute here? Well, this is a painting that a curator at Yale University spotted when he was digging through the storage space of one of the galleries at the university. And the painting was called The Education of the Virgin. And there had been some speculation that it was painted by the famous 17th century Spanish master, Diego Velazquez. The problem was that there was really no way or know if there was any way to authenticate it. So that's when they turned to science. What the researchers knew about Velazquez is, first of all, that he preferred to create his own colors, specifically his own greens by mixing blues and yellows. He didn't just buy green off the shelf, as it were. Uh, He also had a very specific style that he used where he was very careful. He tended to sketch beforehand. If he made a mistake, he would go back and um, maybe peel the paint off and start over. These are the types of things you don't see with forgers as much or with people that are less professional. Just They just don't put in the care to detail. When scientists took a closer look uh, at this painting, they saw that indeed the greens they saw were a mixture of pigments and that they did see evidence that some of the paint had been scraped off and that the artist had gone in again and tried to really perfect the image, all of which added together suggests that this was a professional artist and probably Velasquez. Now on to what they call the mummy portraits. How old are these paintings and what were the researchers able to learn about them? Well, these were paintings that are over 2,000 years old. They were found buried in Egypt during the Roman period. And they were a set of three portraits found associated with mummies. Now, the question here was, obviously, we're never going to figure out who made them, but the question here was, did the same person make all three? And again, by peering very deep into the portraits here, the scientists analyzed the 3D structure of the work. They were able to tell that all of them seemed to have been made in the same way and that the paint that was used, not only was it the same kind of paint, but it all seemed to come from the same pot of paint, which is pretty remarkable that they were able to do that, which all suggests that this was probably the same painter for all three portraits. Okay, on to the forgeries. What was forged and how did it get figured out? So the artist in question here is a woman by the name of Clementine Hunter, who was a self-taught and incredibly prolific African-American painter from Louisiana who worked in the early 20th century. She's had a lot of people try to copy her works over the years, in fact, have been copying her works. And the big question is, how do you tell the forgery from the real thing? And there was a specific couple who seem to be the most prolific collectors, but also possibly the most prolific forgers. That's right. And when the FBI raided their house, what they found is they lived in a house with 30 cats. And when researchers looked closely at their paintings, they found a lot of cat hair (laughs) in the painting, which was not present in the true works of Clementine Hunter. So cat hair brought down a pair of forgers. Before we get to the wrap-up here, I want to call attention to one of my favorite parts of the annual meeting this year. AAAS asked folks on Twitter to share their favorite science jokes. Using the hashtag SciLaughs, we got over 100 jokes. Some of them were not even that terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually have a few favorites, Steve. Uh, One of my favorites, and I apologize in advance for the level of nerdiness that we're going to reveal right now. Okay, this is from Christina Solinsky, or her handle is Christina Sals at 
uh, and her tweet is, I can write a joke about CRISPR, but it might get edited. Oh, God. Okay, and then the reply, and this one is from Michael Bam. I've been wanting to use Cas9 to make lettuce that doesn't wilt and call it salad crisper. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, Dave. What joke would you like to share with our audience? Well, I have to say, and uh, I have to be non-humble here for a second, but my uh, my tweeted joke uh, I think was the most popular from the meeting, although it's certainly not my joke, uh, though its provenance is sort of lost to the sands of time. But anyway, and it's also very corny, so apologies in advance. But two atoms are walking down the street, and one says to the other, I think I lost an electron. And the other one says, are you sure? And that first atom says, yes, I'm positive. <laughs> I can still laugh at it, even though I do have the T-shirt. And one more, this one from Elizabeth Briankowski. Two dipoles pass each other on the street. One says to the other, have you got a moment? Oh, my. <laughs> Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how early humans may have been having sex with Neanderthals a lot earlier and a lot more frequently than we thought. And also a story about the DNA in the mitochondria of our cells. Why is it there if our cells already have their own nuclear DNA? For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how a virus in Australia is actually giving endangered species a new lease on life. Also a story about why a former climate czar is in hot water over sexual harassment allegations. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Malnutrition is a persistent problem around the world, and providing more and better food doesn't always solve the problem. Laura Blanson and her colleagues looked at the effects of altered gut microbes on nutritional status to find out if lingering effects of malnutrition can be wiped out with a new set of microbes. As we study infant growth and development, we typically consider our human cells, but there are also a whole host of microbial cells in and on our body called the microbiota that is also changing over time as we grow and develop. And we can consider this microbiota as an organ that might also be contributing to growth. In a previous study within the lab, we saw that over time, the gut microbiota was changing in infants and children in Bangladesh. And we were able to define how the specific bacteria were changing in patterns over time in healthy individuals. However, within infants and children that were experiencing undernutrition, we saw that the healthy development of their gut microbiota was disturbed. So this led to the question of whether the gut microbiota, as it's changing over time within infants and children, just serves as a biomarker of health status, or whether the gut microbiota might be causally impacting infant growth and development. So that was our main question, is if we could really determine if there's a causal role for the microbiota in growth and development. You spoke earlier about how the gut microbiota change or develop kind of like an organ as mm -hmm. an infant develops. What kind of changes does it undergo? And does this process seem similar, like around the world? I think you mentioned Bangladesh. Is that something you can replicate in other countries? Yes. As I did mention, we 
first started looking at the development within Bangladesh, and our next question was, in fact, is if we were able to similarly define this developing organ in other populations, which is how I turned to Malawi. And we saw that, yes, I was able to determine this defined program of microbial development in Malawi as well. And not only was I able to detect this defined succession of bacteria, we also saw broad patterns that emerged in both the Bangladesh and the Malawi populations. So, for example, in both Bangladesh and Malawi, very early on in life, in the first few months, there's high abundance of many bifidobacteria, and these are common within infants. But over time, these bifidobacteria decrease in their proportional abundance, and a diverse group of another type of taxa, typically firmicutes, come in and colonize the gut. So we saw these patterns both in Bangladesh and Malawi. In this study that we're going to talk about more today, you introduced different microbial communities harvested from kids with different nutritional statuses into germ-free mice. Mm -hmm. What happens when you did that? So, yes, we had a series of germ-free mouse experiments where we tried to replicate the conditions of these infants and children within Malawi. So the first step that we did was to formulate a diet that replicated the types of complementary foods and nutritional value that uh, infants and children receive in Malawi. And then uh, when we switched um, recently weaned actively growing mice onto this prototypical representative diet and then colonized those mice with either microbiota uh, collected from healthy individuals or undernourished individuals, we saw a difference in how those recipient mice grew. Mm -hmm. So if mice had been colonized with microbiota from healthy individuals, they grew significantly more than mice that had been colonized with the microbiota from undernourished infants. And this uh, was evidence to us that the microbiota really can play a role in contributing to healthy growth of the host. Another thing I'll say about the mouse experiments that really underscored the importance of the gut microbiota is that we looked at the food consumption of the mice, and even though there were differences in the growth phenotypes that we saw, there were no differences in how much food these mice were consuming. So the only difference between the groups of mice were whether they were colonized with a healthy infant's microbiota or an undernourished infant's microbiota, which again underscored how the gut microbiota was causally impacting the growth of the mice. And then you took these mice that were in different conditions, those with the microbiota from undernourished kids and those with microbiota from healthy kids, and you house them together. Mm -hmm, And you mm -hmm. saw an invasion. Who invaded who and what was the result of that? Yes. So by putting mice in the same cage together, they get exposed to one another's microbial communities. So we put two mice into the same cage, one that was originally colonized with a microbiota from a healthy infant, and then the second was colonized with a microbiota from the undernourished infant. And when we did that, first of all, we saw that mice that had been originally colonized with the undernourished microbiota had an increase in its growth. So by co-housing that mouse with a healthy mouse that was colonized with a healthy microbiota, that changed the ability of that mouse to grow. And so from there, we went and wanted to see what was happening with the microbial dynamics in this co-housing experiment. And we saw that microbes from the healthy infant's microbial community that was within the mouse successfully invaded into the 
other mouse that was colonized with the undernourished community. Mm-hmm. So they, quote-unquote, good actors from the healthy community seem to invade into the community of bad actors within the undernourished microbiota. Once you figured out which one of these good actors could force this change and start to change the nutrition status of the mice, what did you do then? Yeah, so the interesting thing from the co-housing experiment was that when the good actors invaded into the bad actors, it wasn't just that there was this increase of the good actors there was the decrease as a bad. So we didn't know if the change in mouse growth was attributable to the addition of these good microbes or the subtraction of the bad microbes. From there, we wanted to specifically ask whether the addition of these good actors would be sufficient to promote growth if they were actually the causal effectors of our growth phenotypes. So what we did is we were able to culture out healthy community-derived invaders, these good actors, and then we added those microbes into the community from the undernourished child. And when we did that, we saw that those mice had a significant increase in growth compared to you know, their controls, which lacked those growth-promoting bacteria. So this told us that we had, in fact, identified bacteria capable of promoting growth within the host. And this was based on mice that were eating a diet that kind of replicated what was going on with the Malawi infants. Is this something Mm -hmm. that you can then kind of generalize out, you know, not just to Malawi, but to other countries? Are these bacteria going to be the key or do you think that'll vary depending on where you are? So this serves as evidence of the gut microbiota's causal contribution Mm -hmm. to, you know, postnatal infant development. But similar experiments will need to be done with microbiota from healthier undernourished children from other populations to really address that if these bacteria may be generalizable or if there may be specific bacteria that are effective within certain populations but not others. Right. How can these results be used clinically? What else do we need to know in order to use this information to help people? There will be many more studies that need to be done before we would potentially introduce beneficial microbes into infants and children in the context of a clinical trial. But another tactic that one could take is to identify complementary foods that are used early in life that may facilitate or even increase the abundance of these growth-promoting or beneficial bacteria. What do you mean by complementary foods? Oh, yeah. So complementary foods are what we refer to as the foods that infants start eating as they wean away from breastfeeding. So they're basically, you know, foods that are consumed early in life. Given that we know that different types of ingredients can serve as prebiotics, that is to say, to facilitate the establishment of different bacteria, if we're able to identify those types of foods that promote the colonization of the bacteria that we've seen to be beneficial, how might that facilitate repair of the undernourished infant's microbiota, which in turn could even boost the growth and development of the individual even more. Wow. Laura, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Laura Blanton recently received her PhD in genetics from Washington University in St. Louis. She and her colleagues write about microbiota and malnutrition in This Week's Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.